Father in heaven, we are so thankful, Lord, that once again you are going to speak to us. You're going to show us a wonderful truth from your word, and I just praise you and thank you for it. And Father, I ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit, may you settle these truths in our minds so that we will truly seek to do that which is holy, right, just, and pleasing in your sight. We know that there is a great work to be done, and we are trusting in the power of your Spirit to equip us to do it. Abide with us now, we pray, Lord. And grant us the infilling of your spirit that he may teach us and guide us into all truth. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let us go to the book of Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. to see a great, great point that I'm hoping that we all considered as we look at this text of Scripture. The Bible says in Matthew 24, and we're going to go ahead and start at verse 14. It says, and, and when you get there, let me know by saying amen. It says, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. So correct me if I'm wrong, the gospel is going to be preached in all the world to all nations for what? A for a witness. Now, why do you think that that point, a witness, is so significant? Why do you think it's so important that it says for a witness versus just saying, well, the gospel is just going to be preached for everybody to hear, period. Why is it that it's, imp it's important for us to understand that the gospel is being preached for a witness? Actions speak, louder than words. Actions speak louder than words. Very powerful. Thank you. Now, here it is that the gospel is something that is going to be witnessed. Not simply heard, but it's going to be witnessed that individuals will be able to see it. Now, here's another point that I want you to understand. This is very important. The other point that I want you to understand is that the gospel is not something that everybody's going to accept. You got you, you to let go of that right now. The gospel is not something everybody's going to accept. But when you preach that gospel, when you give it to individuals, when you offer it to them, some may reject it. But in truth, they are rejecting Jesus. And you have done your work faithfully, which is to be a witness. You see, Jesus made it clear that the gospel has to go through all the world for a witness, meaning that everyone has had an opportunity God's not going to close probation on a bunch of individuals because, oops, too late, you didn't get the message. God is not unfair like that. The message has to go to everybody. Everyone will have to at least have an opportunity to witness this message. Their acceptance of it is not necessary. It's desired. It's what God wants, but it's not necessary. But the fact that they would receive and hear it and behold it with their eyes. 
God can say to everyone, you all had a chance. But I want you to notice something that is stated in the very first four words of that text of Scripture. What did it say in the very first four words of verse 14? What does it say? And this gospel of the kingdom. Now, brothers and sisters, if I were to say to you, let me use one of you all as an example. So this way you can properly understand who looks like they have some room on their table. All right. I'm going to put all these here. If I go to my sister and I say, hey, do me a favor. If I were to say, um, give me the book. Please. That's not one I wanted. But give me the book, please. No, that's not the one I wanted. You see, the challenge that my sister has, she doesn't know which book I want. All she knows is that I want a book. So therefore, she's just, she, she did the easiest one, the one that was sitting right there on top. She just, <laughs> you know, here you go. Now, if I were to say, give me the book at the bottom called Testimonies to the Church, Volume 9. Then she's going to look, she's going to assess, she's going to make sure it is what it is, and then she's going to do what? Give it to me. Thank you very much. Very good. Thank you. You see, there's a difference. When Jesus said that this gospel was going to go through all the world, he said, and this gospel. He didn't just leave it open to any gospel, but he said, but this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. Which means that it is a what kind of gospel? A specific. That's the word I wanted. Specific. It's a specific gospel, not just simply any gospel. And you will understand why this, this, point, this point is crucial. Jesus was able to say, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for the witness. So Jesus was being specific. He was not just simply talking about any old thing. Now, why do I make that point? Because I want you to see this. Go to the book of Revelation chapter 14. In Revelation chapter 14, Jesus makes it clear as it relates to the subject of the gospel. I want you to see something that Jesus brings out in Revelation, the 14th chapter. Now, I want you to hold on to some of these points because you're going to see something. Like I said, we're going to look at the three angels' messages in just a little bit different of a manner than we normally look at it. In Revelation chapter 14, starting at verse 6, what does the Bible say? In Revelation 14 and verse 6, the Bible says, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. And then what happens is, of course, we have in detail what this gospel is. So the first thing I want you to understand is that the three angels' messages is summarized as the everlasting gospel. I remember one time I was talking to someone and they said, you know, we, we, we can't preach the three angels' messages every week. You know, sooner or later we got to touch on something else. I said, well, what's the three angels' messages? He said, oh, you know, to, to fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment. And he started to explain. I said, no, 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 no. I said, what are the three angels' messages? They didn't understand what I was saying. I said, go to verse 6 of Revelation 14. Revelation 14, 6 just told us. What are the three angels' messages? The what? 
the everlasting gospel. I said, are you telling me you can't preach the everlasting gospel every Sabbath? I said, if you can't preach that, then why should we come to church? Because all we're coming to church to hear is what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, here's my point. I'm so thankful. Now, I'll tell you the truth. There are many of us, we don't even understand what the three angels' messages really are. There are many of us who don't, don't quite understand it, even from its, its, its most simplest point. But here's what we're going to do. Number one, we're going to understand some principles as it relates to the three angels' messages. Number one, the three angels' messages is defined or summarized in verse 6 of Revelation 14 as the everlasting gospel. So let's make sure we understand that. Now, point number two. The three angels' messages is also something else. Most individuals present the three angels' messages as something you must know and something you must understand. That's what a lot of people do. But I'm going to ask you a question. What is the gospel? There is a word that is used to summarize the three angels' messages, which is called the gospel. But what exactly is the gospel? What does the gospel mean? Who said that? How many of us would agree that the gospel is the good news? Do we agree? Do we agree? Do we agree? All right. Now, here's my question. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by how many words? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In times past, the seven-day Adventist was known to back up what they believe from the Bible. So therefore, I'm going to ask you a question. You all told me that the gospel, the definition of the gospel is good news. That's what I heard it say, right? Where in the Bible does it tell us that? There's a reason why I make this point. While you're thinking, I want you to listen to this. In volume five of the testimonies, page 707, I want you to listen to a quote that I'm going to share with you. This is the reason why I ask you these questions. When I ask you these questions, where in the Bible is it? I'm not doing it for fun. I'm doing it because we are living in the time of judgment. One of the things we're supposed to be doing is afflicting our souls, which means that we are to examine ourselves to really see where we're at. Let me show you why I'm asking you this question. Where is it in the Bible? You will be amazed at how some of us might be fulfilling prophecy even as we speak. In volume five of the testimonies, page 707, I want to read a statement to you. Might shock you. It says, I have been shown that many who profess to have a knowledge of present truth know not what they believe. Did you hear that? When God's prophet says that the Lord took possession of her mind and showed her something, that means that you and I need to pay very close attention. It says, I have been shown that many who profess to have a knowledge of present truth know not what they believe. They do not understand the evidences of their faith. They have no just appreciation of the work for the present time. And it says, when the time of trial shall come. When the time of what? When the time of trial shall come, there are men now preaching to others who will find upon examining the positions they hold that there are many things for which they can give no satisfactory reason. Until thus tested, they knew not their great, interest, their great ignorance. It says, and there are many in the church who take it for granted that they understand what they believe. 
Do we see that today? There are many of us that we take for granted that we understand these things because we always feel secure around other Adventists. As long as I'm around another Adventist brother or sister, or as long as I got my cell phone and it's working, (laughs) and we can call an elder or a pastor or somebody to answer the questions we can't answer, there's this comfort zone that we have. But I want you to listen to this. It says, but until controversy arises, they do not know their own weakness. When separated from those of like faith and compelled to stand singly and alone to explain their belief, they will be surprised to see how confused are their ideas of what they had accepted as truth. That's what's going to happen to a lot of people. Right now they're saying, oh yeah, three angels' messages? I know all about it. Yeah, first angel, second. People go, oh, the the gospel? Oh, it's that. People are going to just say, yeah, 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 I know these things. But it said specifically, when they have to stand single and alone, it is at that time that they're going to realize how confused are their ideas of what they had accepted as truth. We don't want to fall into that condition, amen? We want to make sure that we know what we believe. Because we got a personal walk with Jesus. Amen? So therefore, I ask the question, what is the gospel? I heard good news. My question is, where is that in the Bible? Romans 10 and verse 15. Let's go to Romans 10 and verse 15. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 15... God says something right here. It says, and how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. How does that sound to you? How does that sound? I would say that's a pretty good text, wouldn't you? Because it says how, you know, it talks about how they're giving the gospel of peace and bringing good tidings or good news. So therefore, did my brother supply a text? Amen, which is good. But now the question is, what is the definition of the gospel? Or in other words, what's this good news? You see, let's go to the book of Romans chapter one. You'll see what I'm talking about. Romans chapter one. In Romans chapter 1, you get a biblical definition of what the gospel is. In Romans chapter 1, I want you to see what the Bible says in verse 16. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. When you get there, let me know by saying amen. Amen. Now here goes a biblical definition of the gospel. Very, very clear. Listen to this now. It says... For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is. So when it says it is, it's about to describe or define what the gospel is. What does it say the gospel is? It is the power of God unto what? Salvation to who? Everyone that believeth. Now, brothers and sisters, the reason why this is very important Do you want to know the biggest reason why we need to understand what the gospel is, what the real gospel is, the true gospel? You want to know why? Go to the book of Galatians chapter 1. 
In Galatians chapter 1, I'm going to show you the reason why we need to know what the gospel is. There's a reason why I ask you these questions and we're trying to qualify statements and make sure that we know what we believe. The book of Galatians chapter 1, I want you to see something that Paul, God's servant, says to you and I. In Galatians chapter 1, starting at verse 6, here's what the Bible says. And if you're there, say amen. Amen. It says in verse 6, and we can read it together. We're going to read it to verse 9. It says... I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another what? Gospel. It says, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would do what? Pervert the gospel of Christ. It says, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be what? A curse. That's strong language. Because if someone were to be cursed who was preaching a false gospel, who's the one doing the cursing? Paul? Who is doing it then? God himself. In verse 9 it says, As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. And the reason why this is so important is because, believe it or not, there's another gospel. There's another gospel that's out there. And we want to make sure that when we talk about we're going to go and give the gospel or preach the gospel or receive the gospel, you better make sure, brothers and sisters, that it's the right gospel. And the way that we will know the right from the wrong is by its definition. So let's go back to Romans 1, 16. Let's look at it again now. Romans 1 and verse 16, we were told, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation. So the very first point that I want you to see is that according to the book of Romans 1, 16, the gospel is not a verbal statement. Did you catch that? The gospel is not just words. It says it is God's power, which means then that the gospel is actually something that's demonstrated and not simply stated. Are you catching that? Now, I want you to see this. It says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God, which means that the gospel has power. But it has power to do something. What was it that the text said? It is the power of God unto salvation. Salvation from what? How do you know? I mean, there's people today who say that we're saved in sin, from sin, some sin. I mean, what exactly is it? How do you know? Let's go to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, we're qualifying our text so we can make sure we understand what we believe from the Bible. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, let's see what the Bible says. Because we have to break down what this gospel really is so we can rightly understand the three angels' messages. Because the three angels' messages is a summarization of the everlasting gospel. So therefore, in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, who can read that for us? With a nice loud voice, Matthew 1 and verse 21. What does the text say? So therefore, we see in Matthew 1, 21, Jesus has come to save us in sin, from sin. Now, what does it mean to be, what does it mean to be saved from something? 
If we're being saved from sin, what does that mean? It means we were in it. Amen. That's true. You got to recognize your true state. But if I'm saved from it, I'm in it. I'm now saved from it. What does that mean? We are what? We are rescued from it. And what does that mean in your experience as a Christian? If you have been rescued from sin, then what does that say about your life? You, you say again, sinless or you're no longer involved in sin. Or would it be safe to say that you have victory over sin? Victory over sin. So therefore, think about it now. The gospel of Christ is God's power to save you and I from the practice, power and penalty of sin. That's what the gospel is. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God demonstrated in yours and my life to give me victory over the penalty, power, and one day even the presence of sin. That's what the gospel is. When Jesus died on the cross, penalty paid. If I accept Christ, the penalty that I was supposed to suffer, which was death, Jesus says, I suffered it for you, you're cleared. But then, we know how it is. Even after we accept Jesus, are we still tempted every day? We are, right? So therefore, we need gospel power, not just to deliver us from the penalty of sin, but also from what? The power of sin. So the gospel is not limited just to simply say, I'm once saved, always saved, as some say. Heaven forbid. Yes, the penalty has been removed, but now God says, I'm going to impart to you my righteousness to give you the power to resist sin, to say no to sin, to live a life where you have victory over sin. Do you know that there are people today who actually believe that we're going to keep sinning until Jesus comes? Did you know that? That is inconsistent with Seventh-day Adventist doctrine. Completely. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, this is where we meet the crux of Galatians chapter 1. If somebody ever were to say to you and I, we are going to keep sinning until Jesus comes, they have another gospel. And Paul said, if we or even an angel from heaven gives another gospel, let them be accursed. If anybody would ever tell you, you're going to keep sinning until Jesus comes. That's a false gospel, brothers and sisters. Because it contradicts Seventh-day Adventist teaching of who we are. It, not only that, it contradicts what the Bible teaches. In Revelation 22, 11, it says, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Now catch this picture. Amen. Probation has closed. It's over. Whoever's on the Lord's side when Jesus says it is done will continue to be on the Lord's side. Whoever is not on the Lord's side, when Jesus says it is done, will remain away from the Lord's side. There will be no repentance. There'll be no changing or exchanging as of that point. It is done. It is finished. Now, watch this. For those of us who understand the sanctuary, we understand then that what Jesus is saying is my work 
in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary is finished. Now, if Jesus is finished with his intermediatory work in the sanctuary, in the point of Revelation 16, then I have a question. When Jesus says it is done, is there any hope for anybody after that if they're still wicked? Is there any hope for them? No, it says, let him who is filthy be what? Filthy still. For the saints, those who are just, will they turn their backs on God at any point? Because Jesus said, let him who is just be just still. So all decisions have been made, right? Question, when all decisions have been made, does Jesus immediately come after that? No. What do what God's people go through? The, the what? Oh, praise God. It's good when we study. That is the beginning of Jeremiah 30, verses 5 through 7, called the time of Jacob's trouble. It is the death decree. This is when every earthly support will be cut off for God's people and they will be running to the mountains and all these different things. Now, country living is promoted before that. I want one of you to please ask me about country living when we do Q&A tomorrow. Please. I'm actually asking you to ask me because I want to say something about that. But we can't go into it right now. But when the close of probation takes place, God's people will be running in the wilderness. Now, here's my question. To those who give another gospel and say that we will keep sinning until Jesus comes. Here's my question. Here's an individual who Jesus just called just and holy. They're running in the mountain. All of a sudden, something happens where they commit sin. If they were to commit sin at that point. Who would be in the sanctuary to mediate on their behalf? Nobody. Nobody. Why? Because Jesus said, it's done. I'm finished. So therefore, if somebody were to sin, and if like the other gospel says, all are going to sin until Jesus comes, then guess what that means? All would be lost and nobody would be saved. Brothers and sisters, it is a doctrine of the devil for us to believe that we are going to keep sinning until Jesus comes. So is it safe to say we're going to keep sinning until grace period, probation time is over with? There will be there will be a battle and a wrestle with temptation while probationary time is still going, which is right now. But there will come a point in time, like we just read in Revelation 16, where probation is going to be closed. And then we'll no longer sin. Those who are on the Lord's side. Amen. There's a scripture, I think, in Hebrews 12. So he is, he has suffered in this flesh, hath ceased from sin. Yes. And there's a correlation, you know, like this, just like the heart, you know, sun will, will harden, you know, clay and soften. Uh, wax. Yes. You know, people's hearts are actually converted. Mm-hmm. When that time of trouble comes, and I mean, I'll tell you, I don't know about you, but when I'm in very serious trouble, the last thing I want to do is to be, you know, away from Christ or doing anything in any way that would separate. That's right. So, you know, it's not something you want to be worrying about, but one thing is certain is that 
you know, if you don't know what your goal is, then you're not going to meet it. And if you look at other people's example, you know, you're not going to meet it either. The example is not other people. It's, it's Christ. It's and Christ and Christ Enoch alone. Walk, you know, and there are Enochs even today. Amen. You know, the thing is, you know, don't go looking for them. Look for Christ and then you can be one again. Amen. So God wants us to understand that the gospel is God's power to give us victory over sin, period. But the only people that can receive this is those who believe. That's what the text says, right? So what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to believe? You see, again, these are things that we have taken for granted. Just like we just read in volume 5 of the testimony 707. These are things that we have taken for granted, but now when we really have to analyze it, we don't necessarily know. The only individuals who are going to experience the gospel power are those who truly believe. So what does it mean to believe? Well, let me show you one thing it doesn't mean. Let's go to James chapter 2. In James chapter 2, once you see what the Bible says here, James the second chapter. Some people would think that to believe is simply to acknowledge that God exists. To state that I believe because I'm acknowledging that God is real, God exists, and I'm saying that he's the Lord, and so on and so forth. And some people say that that's belief. Well, let's look at James chapter 2. Let's look at what the Bible says here. In James chapter 2, in verse 19, notice what the Bible says. And if you're there, say amen. In James 2.19, let's read it together. The Bible says, Thou believest that there is what? One God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Devils believe in God. Text just said it, didn't it? But they still tremble. So therefore, believing in God has a lot more to do than just simply saying I acknowledge who he is and I recognize that he is the Lord and I recognize he has power. Even demons can say thou art the Christ. So lip service does not mean that we believe. But I do want to show you something in the book of Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. In fact, let's go to Romans 11. Romans chapter 11. I do want to show us something I think is very interesting. Romans chapter 11. In Romans chapter 11, I want you to see what the Bible says here. And we'll start at verse 29. It says, and this is actually talking about the gospel too, because, you know, you could look at verse um, 27 and it says in verse 27, for this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Praise God that Jesus says, I'm going to take your sins away. But then he goes on in verse 28, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the father's sake, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For as ye in times past have not believed God. Now, how many of us have a cross reference in our, in our Bible, where that word believe, another word comes up. And I want to see if you have it in your Bible. Some of you have it, I know. What does that cross-reference say? Obey. Isn't that something? Come on, now catch that. That word believe actually in the Greek means obeyed. So here goes God actually saying that the word belief includes 
obedience. Now watch this. Let's, let's, let's translate verse 30 then. And let's use the word obey instead of believe. Let's look at what the text says now. So verse 30 would read, For as ye in times past have not obeyed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience instead of unbelief. The word believe means to obey. So let's watch this now. Romans 1.16, we're defining the gospel again. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation from sin to those who obey. Wow. Pretty powerful. Because now we're trying to find out, do you know there are some individuals today who are trying to access gospel power, but they're not willing to obey? Can that work? Can you and I call the shots to God and say what we're willing to accept and what we're not willing to accept? There are a lot of people who try to have religion like that, you know. They try to say, Lord, I'll work a deal out with you. I'll follow 99% of what you say, but this 1%, uh uh-uh. This is mine. You see, when you look at the three angels' messages, the three angels' messages is summarized as the gospel, and the gospel is the power of God unto salvation from sin to those who are willing to obey. So therefore, when we really look at the three angels' messages, we understand now that these messages are not simply words that we repeat from memory, but it's an experience that we are to receive in our hearts and in our lives. You see, if I were to ask you, do you know the first angel's message? Some of us would say, yes, I do. But it's a different question if I say, are you experiencing the first angel's message? Some people are like, what? How do you do that? But that was God's intention all along. The three angels' messages is something you experience. Not something you just simply teach. Have you ever experienced the second angel's message? Let me show you an example. What's the second angel's message? Revelation 14.8. Go there. Revelation 14.8. What's the second angel's message? Let me show you what I mean when I talk about experiencing the second angel's message. What does it say? Revelation 14 and verse 8. It says... Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Some of us, we can say it with our eyes closed. I mean, we just know this thing, don't we? But watch this now. Watch this. Brothers and sisters, here's my question. Here's my question. Yes, it is true that Babylon has fallen But I wonder, could it be? You know, when challenges started to come into the Seventh-day Adventist church, there were challenges on doctrine, challenges on belief systems and all sorts of things. There are some people who got so frustrated at these challenges that they left the church. And what they did was they started to form other churches to the point that they tried to develop another general conference. And they would begin taking the weapons of God's word and they would turn it against the very church that was supposed to give this word. And they would actually call the church Babylon. I don't know if you ever met people like that. They would actually start calling the church Babylon. First selected messages, page 179. The prophet of God made it very clear 
that there will be those who will go around and they will call the church Babylon. But she made it very clear. She said, this is something that Satan wants. She says, believe not this truth. There'll be those who will start calling individuals out of the Seventh-day Adventist church to form purer and holier groups. She says, be afraid of them. That message is from Satan. This church is not Babylon. This church will not be Babylon. But could it be that there might be some Babylonians in the church? Could it be that there are those who are still trying to hold on to that which is confusion in the church? You see, if you and I are trying to put one foot in the world and one foot in the church and trying to mix the holy with the profane, that was something that Babylon did. So when I ask the question, are you experiencing the second angel's message? I know what I'm asking you. I'm asking you, has confusion been removed out of your life? Because you might be a member by name and by book as a part of the remnant church of Bible prophecy. But by lifestyle and experience, could it be that many of us are Babylonians? Do we still long after the flesh pots of Egypt? Even though God has given us a health message since 1863? Could it be that we still long, as Brother Myers said, all of the good old worldly music? We love to dance and get our grooves on and do all these different things while we name the name of the remnant. Could it be that there are Babylonians in the camp while we profess to be the remnant? The second angel's message is an experience, brothers and sisters. It was designed to remove the confusion from our lives. Because Babylon, that's what it means, confusion. That's what the second angel, that's what it deals with. It deals with confusion. Is confusion being removed out of your life? The first angel's message, what is that? What's the first angel's message? Fear God. And give glory to him. Why? For the hour of his judgment is come. What does it mean to fear God? Huh? To shun evil? To respect him? Let's go to Proverbs chapter 8. In Proverbs chapter 8. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Okay, very good text. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 8. Let's look at what Proverbs 8 tells us. Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13. What does the Bible say? In Proverbs 8 and verse 13, let's read what the text says. Let's read it together. The Bible says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the forward mouth do I hate. Do you have a hatred to evil today? Do you have a hatred for evil? You see, if you have a hatred for evil, then you're experiencing the first angel's message. But do you know that that's not the case with many of us? Do you know there are many of us who don't hate evil? We enjoy it. 
We enjoy it through what we watch on TV. We watch people kill each other, which the Bible calls evil, but some of us sit back and we call it entertainment. Some of us, we read books that have stories in it that talk about individuals dating and courting and having sex and doing all these different things. And we read that and we're not hating that information. We are enjoying it. But the Bible calls fornication an evil act. Do you know, brothers and sisters, that even buying and selling on the Sabbath day, according to Nehemiah 13, verses 15 through 22, the Bible literally calls it an evil thing. But some of us do that without no conviction. Some of us do that without a problem. We justify it and we make all sorts of excuses for it. Brothers and sisters, are you developing a hatred for evil? And do you know the answer for most of us is not so, but there's a reason why. Go to Matthew chapter 5. You see, these things, hatred and love are like a coin that have two sides to it. You can't have heads without tails, right? But here it is that you'll see that it's like a coin. Watch this. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. In fact, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6. And you'll see what I mean. This is the reason why many of us, we're having a problem with hating that which is evil because we have a problem with this. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, let's look at a principle that Jesus brings out. In Matthew 6 and verse 24, what does the Bible say? It says, no man can serve how many masters? Two masters. It says, for either he will hate the one, but then what comes on the other side of the coin? And love the other. And then it goes on to say, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Brothers and sisters, you cannot hate evil until you learn to love righteousness. We can say with our lips all day long, oh, I hate evil. Oh, evil is just so bad. And we'll be the same individuals giving into temptation and committing evil acts. It is only until we develop a love for righteousness that we can truly hate that which is evil. Now, I'm married. And it has now been 12 years. And brothers and sisters, I will tell you. I love my wife and I love my blessed little children. But that love takes time to develop. You don't meet somebody today and just say, you know what? I think I'm in love with you. <laughs> That's called infatuation and all that stuff. But brothers and sisters, it takes time to develop that love. If you think that you love Jesus, but you're not having morning devotion? If you think that you have a love for Jesus, but your prayer life is no longer than 30 seconds per session? And I'm not giving a timeline on prayer, but brothers and sisters, sometimes we know how we are. Sometimes we're rushing to get up off our knees or open back our eyes so we can be about the day's business. Sometimes we're not trying to commune with God in prayer. We're just doing it as if it is a ceremonial rite. How can you develop love for Jesus, who is our righteousness, if we don't spend time with him? And if we are not spending time with Jesus, having that love relationship, then there's no way we can ever develop a true hatred towards evil. 
And this is why when Jesus, when he was tempted, it pained him. It hurt him. When we're tempted, we enjoy it. We enjoy temptation. It feels good. Because we don't have a hatred towards evil, because we don't have a love for righteousness, because we don't spend time with the one who is our righteousness. So therefore, are we really experiencing the first angel's message? You see, we know it. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment to come. Worship him that may heaven and earth to see the fountain of waters. We know how to repeat it like that. But brothers and sisters, if you are not experiencing the first angel, you're going to end up receiving the mark of the beast. And I will end up receiving the mark of the beast. Because it will not be those who profess lip service that are going to be faithful unto death. But it's those who have the experience with Jesus that will be thou faithful unto death. Jesus wants you to see that the first, the second, and the third angel's message is God's power to save you from sin because of your willing obedience. As a result of your willing obedience, this is what Christ wants to do. He's demonstrating that power. I want you to think about it. Remember that man who was at the pool of Bethesda. In John chapter 5, he was at the pool of Bethesda, and here he is. He's laying down there, and he's just, you know, laid out. Here it is. He's watching people go along, and he's just trying to get up and, you know, do something. And every time, the, you know, the story, it says every time the angel came and trickled the water, that he, you know, he would try to work his way in there. Here it is. This brother's been laid out for over 20 years, and he's just done, and he's just trying to get in. Jesus comes along. He sees this man in this poor state. Jesus comes to the man. He asks him a simple question. Hey, do you want to get well? This man looks at him and he says, well, you know, every time I try to get in the pool, somebody else goes before me and da, 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 da. And he just starts rehearsing his mountains, even though he was looking right in the face of the mountain mover. And he rehearses his mountains and he's saying, yeah, you know, man, I, I just try. And Jesus, because he's Jesus bypasses all of his excuses. He looks at the man right in his eyes. He sees that this man wants to get well. He says, son, get up. Take up your mat and walk. Ministry of Healing tells us that if this man did not literally take his hands and literally tried to lift himself up, he would never have been healed. When he put his hands on the ground, what he did was he acted out his faith. You see, go to the book of James chapter 2 again. James chapter 2. So you can really understand what I'm trying to say as it relates to the message of the three angels, which is the gospel. In James chapter 2, in verse 18, here's what the Bible says. James 2, verse 18. The Bible says, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. And what's that last sentence say? And I will show you by my works. It is not the works of man that makes him righteous. But the works 
of the man are to testify that he has experienced Christ's righteousness. William Tyndale, the great reformer, said it this way. He said, it's not the fruit that grows on the tree that makes the tree either good or bad. But the fruit simply tells us what kind of tree it is. He says, so it is with our works. Our works testify that we have faith in God. When we do what we do, brothers and sisters, the question is, number one, are you experiencing God's power? Are you still in bondage to sin? Do you see sin having domination over your life day in and day out as soon as it shows its ugly head? Or are you experiencing victory? The three angels' messages are designed to show you and I how to experience victory over sin through the power of God. But you are going to have to obey what these messages teach you. These messages, brothers and sisters, they teach us to fear God, which is to develop a hatred towards that which is evil. But the only way I can hate evil is when I love righteousness. And the only way I can love righteousness is when I spend time with God. If you're spending more time in school books than you are in the study of God's word, spending time in prayer and doing the work of evangelism, brothers and sisters, you're setting yourselves up for failure. Christ doesn't want that for you. I want you to think about it. Great Controversy, page 519. Great Controversy, page 519. It says, Satan well knows that those whom he can get to neglect prayer and the searching of the scriptures will be overcome by his attacks. That's why our lives are so busy. You always ever sat down and wondered, why am I so busy? Why is it that it just seems like I never have time? Because Satan well knows that those whom he can get to neglect prayer and the searching of the scriptures will be overcome by his attacks. So therefore, he creates all sorts of inventions. He'll send people in your life. That handsome guy you've been waiting for, he finally shows up. That pretty young lady you've been longing for, she finally shows up. That promotion with the job that you've been waiting for or that great success for your business, all of a sudden, everything's getting busy. Satan will do whatever he has to do to get you and I to neglect prayer and the searching of the scriptures. Because he knows if I can get you to do that, I got you. Satan well knows. And he would love for us to make the mistake that the Jews in Christ's day made. Desire of Ages, page 309. The greatest deception that took hold of the people in Christ's day was that they thought an intellectual assent to truth constituted righteousness. And there are people today who think that simply because they can memorize scripture and simply because they can memorize the spirit of prophecy and simply because they can quote Daniel and Revelation and because they can repeat verbatim the three angels' messages and they believe, brothers and sisters, this constitutes righteousness. But the question is, well, hold on. 
Are you fearing God in your day-to-day experience? Are you developing more of a hatred towards that which is evil and a love for that which is righteous? Are you removing confusion out of your life? Seventh-day Adventists in movie theaters is confusing. We're not supposed to be there. Philippians 4 and verse 8 says, Whatsoever things are true, honest, lovely, good report, virtuous, if there be any virtue or any praise, think on these things. Take any movie out there, even the most Christian, so-called Christian movies, and put it to the test of Philippians 4, 8, and it will fail all day long. Passion of the Christ, when that devilish, wicked movie came out. That thing, even the New York Times said, This is a movie about Mary and not Jesus. Now, how is it that the children of the world are wiser than the children of light? Many of us made excuses and we said, oh, it's a Christian movie. Let's go. But even the New York Times was able to see through the devil's deception. Mel Gibson, he said, he said, he said this thing. I did this to uplift Mary. But some of us, because the desire was just there to just go. We went. Brothers and sisters, if you profess to be counted amongst those who are trying to prepare for the coming of the crisis and the coming of the Lord, we will understand that jewelry does not belong on the seventh day Adventist. That's confusion. You will find that if we're truly preparing for the coming of Jesus, there's going to be a lot of things that's going to be removed from our lives. And a lot of things we are going to start to embrace because we want to remove the confusion from us. So, brothers and sisters, don't get me wrong. I want you to know how to repeat the three angels. I want you to be able to have the surface understanding We need to start somewhere. But remember that 1 Corinthians 2 tells us that the spirit of God is deep. And he wants to reveal to us the deep things of God. We have to go deeper. We are told that our movement is going through a shaking. And brothers and sisters, everything that can be shaken will be shaken. You read Amos chapter 9 and verse 9. God said, I am going to shake the house of Israel. So there is a shaking going on. Decisions are being made. We must not allow ourselves to be shaken out of this faith. And therefore, we got to remove the confusion. Tomorrow, when we go over the subject health reform, the third angel and our youth is when we'll talk about the experience of the third angel. And brothers and sisters, I'm going to show you something in that third angel's message. You know, people always say, well, did you know health reform is in the first angel's message, the second angel's message, and the third angel's message? It's in all of them. Tomorrow, we'll go over that. Health reform, the third angel, and then young people, I'm going to show you the role that you play in all of it. According to the Bible and spirit of prophecy. So I pray by the grace of God that this was a study where, yes, we looked at the three angels' messages, but brothers and sisters, let's not look at it on the surface. Let's ask ourselves, am I experiencing that first angel? Am I experiencing the second angel? Am I experiencing the third angel? 
or do I just simply know it? Because as Great Controversy, page 608 says, as the storm approaches, a large class who have professed faith in the third angel's message, but who were not sanctified by obedience to the truth, will abandon their position and join ranks with the opposition and become the most bitterest enemies of their former brethren. You see, what the point that the prophet of God is trying to make is that if we harbor Babylon in our heart, it will not be a problem that when the crisis and the trial hits to go join with Babylon. Because in truth, we were Babylonians anyhow. Let's not be counted amongst that number. Jesus is about to come. This crisis, this national Sunday law is soon to pass. And we must make sure that we are ready. And you know what? Jesus says you will be ready. As long as you find a refuge in me and do what I have called you to do. How many of us are willing to find a refuge in Christ and to do all that he has called us to do? How many of us are willing to do that? If that's your desire, then I invite you to join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for giving us a true picture of what the gospel really is. Yes, Lord, it's the summary of the three angels' messages. But, Father, the purpose of the three angels' messages is to give us the power of God unto salvation from sin to those of us who are willing to obey that we might have victory over sin. Lord, I pray that you will bless each and every one of your people, that we will take these deep truths and allow them to be simplified. I pray for the wisdom of your Holy Spirit to continue to work and impress upon our hearts the nearness of your soon coming and how much you want us to get ready. Abide with us now, we pray. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And let thy will be done, we ask, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.